It's Monday, January 8th, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Secretary of Defense apparently undertook a mission so covert that no one knew about it. Not his next in command, not his boss, President Joe Biden. Lloyd Austin checked himself into a hospital on January 1st without notifying others in the chain of command. Representative Jim Clyburn defended the secretary's actions this way. So I don't know all the particulars here. I do know Lloyd Austin. He is a stand-up guy. Except he literally was not. He was in a bed in the intensive care unit where he still is, or at least still in Walter Reed Medical Center. I don't doubt that Secretary Austin deserves all the superlatives that Clyburn went on to bestow. He's a great uh, defense secretary. Uh, He has been a tremendous military man in this country. And I'm told he is now in charge of things as he was before the illness. Now, we have some laws in this country, the HIPAA laws. uh, Keep us out of people's medical businesses. And I do believe this man has as much right to be protected by those laws and be subjected to those laws as everybody else. But I've got to evaluate those comments with a yes and a no. Austin is a civilian. He is protected by HIPAA, but it is the norm that high-ranking government officials just can't keep their conditions secret from the president and their staffs. Furthermore, there is something called the military command exception, and it allows the military to make fitness for duty determinations. I would suggest a default to that spirit of the exception, plus the normal course of action for the person, what is he, sixth in line to the presidency? And by the way, in charge of an extremely massive and massively engaged military. The administration, meaning in this case the White House, did not engage in a cover-up. They were as surprised by everyone else as all of this, and they didn't seem too pleased by it. Of course, we should say that we hope that Lloyd Austin recovers to serve his country as literally the stand-up guy that Congressman Clyburn affirms him to be. On the show today, Joe Biden, hate, and the ephemeral meaning of white supremacy. When Joe Biden says it, does he mean like the KKK or just the essential nature of America itself in need of quote-unquote dismantling? You'll find out by the end of the spiel. On a programming note, our interview with an Alaska Airlines flight attendant has been put off, though there clearly was a hole in the schedule. We regret the inconvenience. But first... In the last days of 2023, 150 missiles and drones penetrated the Ukrainian defensives, leaving 30 people dead in Kiev, the deadliest day since the invasion by Russia began. Similar assaults have happened ever since then. The Ukrainians wait for an aid package that is held up in the United States Congress and over in the EU, their 50 billion euro package is blocked by Viktor Orban of Hungary. Up next, we will speak to Yaroslav Trofimov, chief foreign affairs correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. He is Ukrainian. He is out with a new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. He will catch us up to the state of the war. Yaroslav Trofimov, up next. It's been almost two years since the initiation of the war in Ukraine. The February or Luti war, 
Luti also means, by the way, ferocious, a word that Zelensky and the Russians have been quick to emphasize. The word Russia itself, I found out from this new book I read, comes from the Kiev Rus Principality, which is established in the ninth century by Viking princes who sailed down the Dnipro River on their way to seek Byzantium's riches. Ukraine, Russia, intertwined, Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Zelensky, the names themselves intertwined and with historical precedent. It's all contained in the new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. The author is Yaroslav Trofimov. I welcome him to The Gist. Hello, Yaroslav. Hello. Great to be on the show. So I want to talk about the battles and the history. But first, let's start with a big question. If you had to choose between tactics, weapons, and fighting will, which do you think is the most important in winning a war? Well, I think all three. Obviously, you know, you can have all the will in the world, but if you don't have weapons that can defeat tanks and missiles and planes, you're going to lose the war. So... Uh, the Ukrainians had, from the very beginning, an advantage in the world because they knew very clearly what they were fighting for. It was very simple. It's to maintain their own country, their own independence, and the way of life, uh, whereas it was very hard to explain to the Russian soldiers why they have to go to a foreign country and to die for what. I mean, it's still not a clear goal of the war. Right. Denazification, Putin says, but what does it mean if there are no Nazis in Ukraine? But you, time and time again, talked to people in Ukraine at the beginning of the war, and you were there, and they emphasized to you that they had the will. But I, and, and the West did not hear this or did not credit it. How much did you at the time, how much were you saying, I do not doubt, I don't doubt that you doubted, that the Ukrainians have a sense of pride, nationality, defense, that the Russians didn't take into account, and that America and Europe didn't take into account. But still, how much did you credit that as being the differentiation that it possibly proved to be? I was pretty confident that Ukraine will not go down without a fight and will put up a strong fight, and that the Russians are underestimating its ability and its desire to fight. And in part, that's because Ukraine changed very fast in the last 30 years since independence. It's developed into a proper nation state. And the war of 2014, the first Russian invasion, when the Russians invaded uh, Crimea and parts of Donbass, was really an inoculation for Ukraine. It gave the Ukrainian society this ability to rally the defense mechanism and create the perception that Russia is the existential enemy that was shared by a much wider part of the population. And also, it created a system of voluntary military units, voluntary uh, sort of helpers for the military, medics, that all mobilized immediately, spontaneously, the moment the war began in 2022. Yes, I want to interrupt you. This was a key insight. I do think that the 2014 takeover of Crimea and the Donbass was seen as uh, a gain by, it was a territorial gain by Putin, and it was seen by the West as an example of perhaps Ukraine's vulnerability. But what it really was is it galvanized Ukraine. In fact, it, as you report in your book, went far to define Ukraine and define Ukraine nationalism. And I do believe that was almost entirely missed by the rest of the world outside of Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. Because also the world, what did the world see? 
the world saw in 2014 the Ukrainian army basically not being a fighting force. You know, Crimea was taken without a shot fired. The Ukrainians sang, sang songs, but didn't really, really resist. And much of the fighting in Donbass was carried out by these volunteer formations that didn't have much training. If Russia had pushed through in 2014, it would probably have taken over Ukraine. But Putin didn't do that. What else did the world see? The world saw uh, in 2021 how the Afghan army collapsed overnight in Kabul and how the Afghan president fled uh, hours after vowing to defend the city and all this American equipment, the Hummers, even the uh, Chinooks and the uh, and one or two Blackhawks ending up in Taliban hands. And so uh, the perception at the outset of the Russian invasion was that Kiev will halt two or three days and collapse. That will be it. The Ukrainian foreign minister told me that when he was in Washington on the eve of the invasion and went to the White House to see President Biden and other officials, it felt to him like he was being diagnosed with stage four cancer. It was a final farewells of a country that people had already started to mourn and bury. Right. Barack Obama telling The Atlantic that uh, Ukraine is always going to be vulnerable to military domination by Russia no matter what we do. In 2014, the mood in Kharkiv had been 70% sympathetic to Russia, with only a third of the population identifying with the Ukrainian cause. But you talked to Ukrainians who said that since 2014, the proportions had flipped. Most of Moscow's support were driven by a sense of nostalgia for their youth rather than Putin's Russia world views. So this was being unacknowledged, and I think that it was, uh, it, if we talk about the failures of intelligence of, say, the West, and maybe Zelensky as well, this was a failure of Western intelligence that is not being uh, reckoned with or talked about even to this day, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, there are many layers of the failure of intelligence. I think there was very clear and good intelligence on what the Russian war plan was. And there was probably less understanding of how weak is the Russian army from within and how much, you know, how much of what uh, would be paraded this modern Russian army was really one of these Potemkin villages. Right. But, but the failure of intelligence was just convincing the consensus was that Russia just wouldn't invade. Although you talk to people When you talk to the actual fighters or people who had been in the fight, they pointed out to you, you don't go through this many drills and live in the woods for weeks and get diarrhea without actually... And that was, to me, the point about the diarrhea was very illustrative. You don't do that unless you mean to attack. Right. But also, you know, if you look at different players here, so the U.S. government, you know, sent the CIA director William Burns to Kiev to warn Zelensky about the invasion in a month ahead, but pretty detailed uh, forecast of what will happen. You know, the Ukrainian military was preparing. It wasn't necessarily telling the politicians what they was doing, and it wasn't telling Washington what it was doing, because you know, the Ukrainian military was paranoid about Russian moles, about leaks. And so uh, basically the war plans that the Ukrainians were sharing with the Pentagon were part of the deception package ahead of the war. That's what people in the Pentagon told me. <laughs> so, but I think the biggest level of failure, as you correctly say, both in the West and in the East, in Moscow, was failing to understand that Ukrainian society is not where it was 10 or 20 years earlier, 
and there was this new sense of identity. There was a fundamental decision to have a nation built on the idea of inclusiveness. So there was, doesn't matter what language you spoke, if you're Muslim, Jewish, Orthodox, Catholic, all these lines of cleavage at the end of the day didn't matter when a foreign country invaded. And you know, as the mayor of Kharkiv, who only speaks Russian in public, was even fine for that, told me, you know, several months into the invasion, it turns out that the real patriots of Ukraine, the people who they hate, sort of are the most determined to resist the Russian uh, aggression, are Russian speakers in the East and the South, because for them, the war was the most real. It's them who saw the houses destroyed, the apartment buildings bombarded, their relatives killed by the Russians, whereas people in many Ukrainian-speaking areas in the West mostly saw the war of this kind only on television. One more point about this, about the will that surprised the West. You quote Olaf Scholz, I think, through uh, a Ukrainian intermediary, or maybe he said it publicly, saying that of right after the invasion, maybe the Ukrainians won't resist and then our problem will be solved. When that didn't happen, was there a vulnerable period where every most nations in the West thought that the Ukrainians would be rolled over and let's even get to the accommodation stage? Was there a vulnerable period where maybe the West EU or the United States was expecting that to happen so much that they were caught unawares and they possibly wouldn't have been able to adequately fund the uh, very real Ukrainian resistance. Uh, this wasn't Olaf Scholz, it was one of his advisors saying this, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister at the time. Okay. Uh, he said it to Boris Johnson. Yes. Yes. So uh, the, if you look at the military aid that the US was providing to Ukraine before the war, it was aid for an insurgency. The assumption was that the army will collapse, the state will collapse, there will be some bands of Ukrainians with javelins and stingers, kind of like the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 1980s, taking pot shots at Russian tanks and, and helicopters. You know, nobody would sell heavy weapons to Ukraine or provide heavy weapons to Ukraine. No, you know. And no planes, no air defenses, no tanks, no armed personnel carriers, <coughs> no artillery. And uh, once the war began, Probably Poland was the only country that, while sharing the same intelligence, had a different belief in Ukraine. So this, this Ukrainian foreign minister in Kuleba, on his way back to Ukraine from uh, New York, uh, couldn't go to Ukraine because the war started. So he flew to Poland instead, and he was a guest of the Polish president, and spoke at the National Security Council of Poland. And immediately Poland started shipping artillery ammunition and other systems across the border. They wanted to ship their planes. The U.S. stepped in and told them not to do it because everyone was really afraid of Russia. Uh, Putin had warned that you will see the reaction of the kind you will have never seen before if you try to intervene and stop our special military operation. And those nuclear, implied nuclear threats and then the pretty explicit nuclear threats throughout the entire war stunted Western support for Ukraine. There was always self-imposed red lines and self-imposed limitations that over time were overcome. But in most cases, when these new weapon systems, new capabilities came in, they came in at the time they were a lot less useful than they would have been, you know, six months earlier or a year earlier. Right, 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 right. The typical request was, we need these HIMARS, we need these 777s, we need... And then 
It takes some procurement. It took some convincing. And then they'd eventually get them, but not when they were needed or not when they were most needed. But I, I look at this, I look at the spring of, well, summer offensive of 2023. You know, Ukrainians were asking for Western-made tanks, Western-made, a lot more artillery uh, and uh, fighting vehicles like Bradleys and Strikers in the summer of 2022 when they're planning the offensive. At the time, the Russians only had 100,000 troops in Ukraine that major losses, and they didn't have fortifications that were stretched thin. So all these requests were denied. They would provoke Russia. Ukraine doesn't need, you know, Abrams and Leopards. Eventually, a year later, all this equipment in much greater numbers than requested in 2022 did arrive. But by then, Russia had mobilized you know, more than 300,000 reservists, spent a year digging in, building fortifications and minefields. And so when all this mountain of steel, as the Pentagon described it, was thrown into battle, it didn't achieve much because by then, Ukraine was facing a much more determined, stronger enemy in much greater numbers. So the historical opportunity was lost. Ukraine, you demonstrate in your book, and sometimes you essentially ride along uh, with some of these uh, Ukrainian fighters. There's a, I think, a female legislator who mm-hmm. goes, jumps in her pickup truck, essentially, and begins to strike uh, the front and back of a tank column. So there are these amazing scenes. But I do want to ask you in general about the tactics. Was it that the Ukrainians were so much more tactically clever or that the Russians were just lost when it came to so many of these tactics? Well, I think I'd look at different stages of the war differently. Initially, the Russians rolled in not expecting much of a resistance. I mean, they brought their parade uniforms with them. They really thought they would take Kiev in three days. Uh, the linchpin of the Russian campaign was seizing the airfield of Hostomol next to Kiev. You know, that would have allowed them to fly in, you know, plane loads and plane loads of airborne troops. And, you know, there was only one brigade defending the entirety of the Kiev region at the time. How many people are in a brigade or a Ukrainian brigade? In that brigade, probably operationally, there were maybe two, 3,000 people. Okay. So it was reinforced with all sort of volunteers and police units, but really there wasn't a lot of forces. Most of the Ukrainian, most of the Ukrainian military was in Donbass at the time. And the mobilization hadn't yet started. <clears throat> so, uh, and the Russians managed to land uh, about 200, 300 paratroopers in that hostomilar field using choppers, some of which were shut down. So they get some amount of elite fighters in and they establish a beachhead there. Right. But the task of these fighters was to control the airfield, which has one of the longest runways in Europe. And, and then to fly in, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 troops with, with their own armor to then just drive into Kiev practically on a post. And the Ukrainians did have enough troops to hold them off, hold this initial onslaught off, and then have enough time to bring in artillery to destroy the airfield and render it unusable. Yeah. So the Russian planes never landed. And in the interim to park trucks and dump trucks and whatever on the airfield so they can't land, which is a common tactic, yeah. Yeah, and so so once the Russians couldn't land in Hostomol, then the entire plan kind of went uh, of kilter, and and then you had these giant Russian columns running into insurgents, insurgent-like operations in their in their in their rear, mm-hmm. and burning logistics, and they were starved of fuel and ammunition and food eventually. And so that this entire 
overextended campaign in the north collapsed within a month. Yeah. Are the Russians still making mistakes of that magnitude? Oh, no, of course not. The Russians are learning uh, fast. Uh, and for every tactical innovation that the Ukrainians make, for example, the use of drones, especially FPV drones, the first-person view drones, the Russians are pretty quick at picking up the new technology and developing it themselves and sometimes doing it better than the Ukrainians. So the Russians have are no longer making this, this sort of mistakes. And obviously, they, uh, they made the very correct choice at the end of 2022 to build these fortifications and minefields in the south that essentially thwarted the Ukrainian offensive. But what the, what the Russians still do, what they still have is this... How would no one say complete, but pretty high disregard for casualties on their own side for human lives. And so they still throw wave after wave of soldiers on near suicidal missions. And they do have more soldiers. And also they have this vast reserve of the Russian penitentiary system where every murderer or rapist or any hardened criminal with life sentence. Uh, has this lottery, you know, if you volunteer for service in Ukraine, you survive six months, you go home. So one of the uh, units that you were with, I don't know if you were embedded with, you were with them at a time, uh, contained a guy named Ola, who was a funeral director in his civilian life. Mm -hmm. And so you're uh, with him as he's wearing a ghillie suit and carrying a sniper rifle. And he says to you, the Russians have unlimited ammunition. And so they fire anywhere they please. We only strike at confirmed targets when we obtain precise coordinates, either by drone or reconnaissance. But I want to ask you, that unlimited ammunition, practically it's true. Does that actually in some ways hurt the Russian uh, tactics and cause? Well, I mean, uh, they don't have a choice, right? Because they, they, they have the precision of their weapons is much lower than the precision of Ukrainian artillery in part because of the training, because the Ukrainians always had a shortage of ammunition. So over the last 10 years, they had to learn how to do more with less, but also because of the, all the new weapon systems are much more precise than Soviet standard artillery. But uh, I want also to say that this particular comment refers to a period in the war when Ukraine had an absolute shortage of ammo. Western mm -hmm. Italy, it was just starting to arrive and Russia still had unlimited resources. If you look at the ratios uh, in the summer or fall of 2023, you would say that Ukraine probably had as much outgoing as incoming. So the, this artillery ratio, because Russia was running low in reserves. Russia has had to import shells from North Korea that are not very high quality and blow up their barrels quite often. And, US, and Ukraine had obtained hundreds of thousands of shells from South Korea. <laughs> so there was this parity in ammunition uh, uh, until late 2023. Now Russia has its advantage again, in part because American funding has dried up because of Congress. And so there's just less being supplied to Ukraine and, and Russia is secure with North Korean resources. Yaroslav will be back again tomorrow to pick up where we left off. We will discuss the state of both the Russian and Ukraine armies, Yaroslav's time on the front lines and what American support of Ukrainian means to victory or defeat. And now the spiel. Joe Biden visited Charleston, South Carolina today. He went to the Mother Emanuel AME Church. 
the site of the 2015 shooting that left nine African-American churchgoers dead. Since then, there have been worse racially motivated killings in the United States. The 2022 Buffalo supermarket shooting left 10 African-Americans dead, but that failed to lodge itself into the national consciousness like the South Carolina tragedy. Maybe you could argue that New York's a blue state with a Democratic governor, and that shooting occurred during the Biden presidency, so he's less inclined to do a campaign event there. There's also the fact that if Biden went to Buffalo, he probably wouldn't get the reception he got at Mother Emanuel. Today, as the name and motivation of Peyton Gendron, the Buffalo shooter, has faded into the bloody woodwork of American mass shootings, the name Dylan Roof, who's on federal death row, is still a watchword for evil. And not just evil, but the evil known as white supremacy. It is quite accurate to call Dylan Roof a white supremacist. He called himself that. But then MSNBC's Morning Joe, Joe Scarborough, speaking with Al Sharpton, engaged in a bit of rhetorical slipperiness with this very sensitive subject. Republican politicians who get very incensed when you start talking about white supremacy, some even suggesting uh, there's no such thing, that it's made up by the media. No, and, and I think that by President Biden going back to Charleston today, uh, to Mother Manuel underscores how ludicrous it is to deny white supremacy. The one who killed these nine people at Bible study, including the pastor who I knew, uh, Reverend Pinkley, he uh, said himself, the uh, shooter, that I'm a white supremacist. This is not something Yes, that yes. Dylan Roof was a white supremacist. And there are people who deny that there is white supremacy, such as this bigoted, violent hatred of other races. It still exists. But there are many, many other people who, when they talk about denying the concept of white supremacy, do not mean that bigotry and hatred doesn't exist. They object to phrases like, the U.S. is a white supremacist culture, or concepts like, the U.S. was built on white supremacy. That version of white supremacy doesn't mean just the worst kind of hate in society, Klansmen and murderers and neo-Nazis. That version means something like the background condition of all American life. It's not an accident, I don't think, that the same term means both the norm and the most evil. The most evil and the most common. And Joe Scarborough and MSNBC know this. So when they talk about denying white supremacy or Republicans objecting to the term white supremacy, they are playing Mott and Bailey with us, if you're familiar with that phrase. It's somewhat more logistical, complicated version of the old switcheroo goes like this. I hope we can all agree that white supremacy is horrible. What happened at Mother Emanuel Church is horrible. Yes. And that was right. White supremacy. Yes. Can you believe one party says there's no white supremacy? Well, sure, you can when that flavor of white supremacy is the everywhere, all the time, defining America kind of white supremacy, the kind referenced in this video on the National Education Association's webpage as part of the white supremacy culture toolkit. But here's the thing. Even if you don't believe white people are superior, white folks still benefit from the system of white supremacy in more ways than one. 
It goes beyond racist white men carrying tiki torches across a college campus. It's the basis for everything in this country. And look, you might agree with that framing. You may disagree. You may partly agree, but wonder why the NEA, the National Education Alliance, has a portion on white supremacy culture on their webpage that claims worship of the written word is part of white supremacy, that promptness is a part of white supremacy. But in any case, let's say you agree with what you just heard there and what you know about white supremacy culture. You think that Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo are more onto something than not. Or let's not even go that far. You think that it raises interesting points. You understand what it means. It's an interesting, useful framing to think about the ills of America. But I hope you can also imagine a reasonable person who certainly hates everything that Dylan Roof did, but is kind of skeptical of the white supremacy culture definition or framing of things. Perhaps you, even as someone who is aware of the racial wealth gap and the disparity in school funding, perhaps you can imagine this differently oriented, reasonable person who might be, say, a swing voter or a voter you would benefit from as a member of your coalition. This person is not a bigot. He doesn't or she doesn't deny the horror of the Mother Emanuel shooting, but also doesn't think promptness is a symptom of something that should be called white supremacy, which is an actual claim on the NEA website. Does it benefit your cause to treat white supremacy as something far bigger than bigotry and to define it as expansive and all-encompassing and guilt-inducing? Must every American embrace this definition or else be cast aside along with the actual Dylan Roof types as bigots themselves? I don't think so. I don't think that's functional. You know who else doesn't think so? President Joe Biden. His definition of white supremacy at Mother Emanuel was a pre-intersectionality definition. He was saying, folks, watch out for these neo-Nazis. The word of God was pierced by bullets and hate, rage, propelled by not just gunpowder, but by a poison. Poison that has for too long haunted this nation. What is that poison? White supremacy. Oh, it is. It's a poison. Throughout our history, it's ripped this nation apart. It says no place in America. Not today, tomorrow, or ever. Yes, that is a good message. Let us not fight or hide the ball on a tricky entrapment-type definition of white supremacy when old-school white supremacy version 1.0 is still here and still killing people. Is the message, we have to stamp out ugly, hateful sentiments, that's a priority, but also we need to attack promptness. Because if that's the message, it shouldn't be the message. We shouldn't be so unclear as to communicate that message. Joe Biden knows his opponent plays footsie and enjoys the support of those quote-unquote good people on the side of all the ugly, hateful sentiments that constitute white supremacy 1.0. He certainly doesn't disavow them. And he certainly thinks that actual, literal, neo-Nazi, racist, tiki torch carriers, they think that he advances their interests. That's what they think of Donald Trump. And this is why it's important to be clear and forceful in calling out the evil that deserves censure and to leave to the side the questionable 
conceptual frameworks better suited to a college colloquium and hopefully not a required one at that. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. Want to advertise with us? Good choice. Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>